Let me ask you now if you would turn your attention to Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we'll begin reading in, and let me also ask if you would stand as I read aloud the Word of God. Luke chapter 9, beginning in the 28th verse, this is what is commonly called the transfiguration of Christ. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Please be seated, and would you join me in prayer? <coughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself. We thank you especially for this passage in which the Lord Jesus Christ is shown in his divine nature to be very God of very God. So we ask, dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, that you would show us more of yourself that you would show us more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, show us more of our need for Him, that you would move our hearts, that we would be dependent upon Him, that we would cast our cares and burdens upon Him, that we would be sanctified by the work of Your Spirit. We ask that you would do this this morning, Lord, in our presence, among Your people, for Your glory and honor, we ask all of this. Amen. Well, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you might know a little bit of uh, something about our family's movie viewing habits, okay? You might know that we don't often watch movies. We're just not a movie family. It's actually a good year if we watch two to three movies in a year, okay? So we watch almost no movies, but we do value from time to time the communal aspect of watching movies with other people. It's a relational thing, right? So you go to the movie theaters. So two or three times a year, we'll do this. Now, because we don't watch many movies, but because we go with friends and family when they want to see a movie, we end up watching a variety of movies that are somewhere in the middle of a series of movies, all right? This is just the nature of our movie-watching habits. So I, I believe that my wife and I have seen X-Men 3. I think we saw two of the Avengers, one about a civil war, another about an, the end game. 
We have seen Toy Story 2 and 3, Madagascar 2, and I can't remember all the, uh, 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 the Lord of the Rings 1. Never saw the rest of the Lord of the Rings, okay? And in some movie series, you can just jump in, begin watching a movie, and you just get it. You see what's happening. But that's not usually the case for most of these series of movies. And so what often happens is pretty comical. We'll begin watching the movie, and this is what you hear throughout the whole movie. Why is he doing that? What's his relationship to her? What, what's that thing that he has? Uh, how did he just get from there to there? Are we in the past, the present, or the future? What exactly is happening? Right? And the people you're watching the movie with, they're always like, just watch the first movie. You'll find out if you just watch the one right before this. Stop bothering us. That general principle is the very same idea that we get when we read the New Testament. The New Testament really can't be understood apart from the Old Testament. There are passages we may read in the New Testament and we need very little working knowledge of the Old Testament and we can still comprehend the New Testament text. But there are other passages where you need a real deep working knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. There are passages that you may read in the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament text that you will have no comprehension of what's going on. Okay? This morning, the transfiguration is one of those passages. This text and the events that are represented in this text, you will grossly misunderstand if you don't have the context of the Old Testament scenes that set the stage for the transfiguration of Christ. So the first order of business then this morning is to catch us all up to speed on some of the Old Testament images that are being pulled upon, utilized, and depicted in Luke chapter 9 this morning. So let me begin uh, with a little updating you on the Old Testament passages. I'm walking over here because I want to begin in my timeline of my mind, okay? On the mount with Jesus appears two characters, Moses and Elijah. Moses is the first one who lived uh, between Moses and Elijah. He existed uh, 400 years on this earth before Elijah did. Moses represents the time period of early Israel. He's a representation of of the law of God, which was given through Moses to the people of Israel. If you remember, Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. God appears to the Israelites as a cloud and as a pillar of fire. That is the visible manifestation of the glory of God before the people of God. And He leads them out of bondage to freedom in their own land. But before they get to the land of Israel, they take a small break in the wilderness Okay? In the wilderness. When they break in the wilderness, God gives them the first five books of the Bible. He also gives them the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. You remember Moses comes down off the mountain and he's got the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And he comes to give the commandments to the people and he finds them worshiping a golden calf. Right? And he's like, what in the world are you guys doing? He smashes the tablets. If you remember, as that story goes along, Moses then recreates the tablets a second time. He takes them back up onto the mountain. He comes before God and he says, here are the commandments. May they be blessed for the people. And then he asks God a very strange question. He says, may it be that I would see your face. 
You remember what God does? Uh, this is uh, Exodus chapter 34. God takes Moses, and it says he hides him in the cleft of a rock. You remember that? Uh, a crag of a rock, a, a, a crack in this boulder. He hides him there, and he covers Moses with his divine hand. So the passage says. And then he passes by. And in that passage, it says that Moses, out of the corner of his eye, he sees the backside of God as he passes by. Now, what that looks like, I got no idea. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. I have no idea what it looks like to look at the backside of a spirit. Okay? I have no earthly concept. But here's what we do know. Exodus chapter 34 says that Moses, now for the next 40 days and 40 nights, he camps out there because he is in awe at what he had just witnessed with his own eyes. He's dumbfounded. He can't comprehend. He desires to worship. He comes off the mountain after 40 days, and the people say that his face glowed with the reflection of the glory of God. Isn't that amazing, okay? That is going to provide us context in the transfiguration. So we move forward a little bit, all right? Moses builds the tabernacle. As Moses builds the tabernacle, the cloud of the glory of God, the manifestation of God's presence with us, descends upon the tabernacle, and then it goes into the tabernacle. There in the tabernacle is God with us. The people of God, including Moses, they, they know, they're told, they cannot enter the tabernacle lest they be consumed by the presence of God. The temple is built by Solomon a few hundred years later. Uh, as you read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says that at the completion of the temple, the cloud of the glory of God descended upon the temple and it entered into the temple. There, the visible manifestation of God with us. Okay, you're getting the theme, right? Okay, so now the glory of God in the temple that God had commissioned to build. He had called Solomon to build it. All right, that's the, the glory of God there in the temple. Now we get the prophet Elijah. If Moses represents the law of God for early Israel, Elijah represents the prophets who spoke to the people of God on behalf of God. And if you remember the story of Elijah, it's a very interesting story. Elijah is running for his life. He fears that he will be killed. Because triumph had turned to tragedy in Israel. The people are not following the Lord God. <coughs> and so uh, Elijah finds himself hiding in a cave. And he's hiding in this cave. He's fearful for his life. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 19, this is what the passage says. God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Yeah, it's funny, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? Okay? You have the same elements, what we just talked about with Moses. The glory of the presence of God, the fear of Elijah, the covering of his face, the inability of him to perceive the presence of God there with him, and then God speaking to Elijah, okay? Well, you know the rest of the story of Elijah. 
Elijah, Elijah speaks the word of God, and then at the end of his life, he doesn't die. God comes in this whirlwind, and he takes Elijah up to heaven, okay? Both these men, Elijah and Moses, they have very interesting endings to their life. Moses died on Mount Nebo. He was buried by God himself. Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind up into heaven, okay? There's one other character I want to mention because it helps us understand this passage. The character is Ezekiel. If Moses was the 1400s B.C., if Elijah was like the 1000s B.C., Ezekiel is like 600s B.C., okay? So we're getting closer to the time of Christ. During the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is living in Babylon. He's been exiled. Israel has been largely destroyed. Ezekiel sees this vision in chapter 9, and he sees all the elders of the temple in the temple worshiping their own idols, okay? Seventy elders. They've all got their own idols. They're all worshiping these idols. It's like the epitome of the bottom of the bottom for Israel. And then Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, he says that he saw a vision from the Lord. And in this vision, he sees the temple. And what does he see? Four angels descending upon the temple. And Ezekiel says he witnesses a cloud coming out of the temple. It was the cloud of the presence of the glory of God coming out of the temple, resting at the doorposts of the temple, And then ascending into heaven where those angels were, and then the glory of the cloud of the presence of God went to rest on a mountaintop, okay, just to the east of the temple. And Ezekiel notes there that the the presence of the glory of God had left the temple, that it was gone, that he ceased now to be there among his people. But Ezekiel spoke of another day when the glory of the presence of God would return. I think... Those Old Testament passages help us as we begin to understand what is happening here in Luke chapter 9. So if you see on your handout, here's the sentence we're working with this morning. The transfiguration of Christ reveals the approachable radiance of the glory of God. The transfiguration of Christ reveals the approachable radiance of the glory of God. Let me just break that down into three parts for you. First of all, concerning the glory of God. Every Old Testament account that I just mentioned to you dealt with the glory of God, but it dealt with the glory of God in a very important sense, in a very reverent sense. The presence of the glory of God depicted by a cloud or depicted by the pillar of fire, His presence with us in the tabernacle or the temple was always communicated as a dangerous, fearful, omniscient, overpowering, bringing death to anyone who came into contact with it, presence, okay? Every account that I just mentioned to you, every account of the Old Testament, God's presence in the tabernacle, the temple, it meant that anyone who set foot in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the temple, would be struck dead. That is the Old Testament portrait of the glory of God, okay? And that glory of God has not changed, but we begin reading in Luke chapter 9 about the glory of God in a very different way. You look at this passage, it's mentioned twice. First of all, in verse 31, the disciples perceive Moses and Elijah, and they perceive them in this passage appearing in glory and speaking with Jesus about his departure. The second time the disciples use the word glory or they they perceive the glory of God is in Jesus, and it's in verse 32. Now, verse 32 is one of the two comical parts of the transfiguration, okay? The first one is like when Peter wants to build houses. We'll talk about that for Moses and Elijah. And you're like, what is going on there? But the, 
The other one here is that these men are found asleep, okay? Every time I read this, you know, this point in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think, how in the world are these guys asleep at this moment? Two of the most important moments in the life of Jesus. Moses and Elijah come from heaven. They're having a conversation on the mountain. The divine presence of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and they're catching up on their Zs, okay? They're sleeping while all this is happening. I don't get it. But when they awake in verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. This is a description, the description here of Jesus in the transfiguration is one where the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they get this moment that not many people get, okay? They get a moment where the humanity of Jesus is peeled back, and they perceive for a second the divine, eternal, second person of the Trinity. And now they're standing with their jaws dropped in all of the second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God, very light of very light. This is the glory of of God among the people. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Peter, James, and John, they reflect on this as they write their letters, their epistles. Peter reflected on 2 Peter, okay? If you remember John, in his gospel, in chapter 1, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, okay? Those are not just nice words that John is saying. He is reflecting on having seen the glory of the Son of God. Glory of the only Son from the Father. And they perceived it. They beheld it. Okay? Now, what we can say about the glory of God, there's not much. We can summarize. Okay? The glory of God is the, the depiction or the representation or the manifestation of the true character of God to a broken, fallen, and limited humanity. Okay? And it is not all of God, of course not. It is not a comprehensive picture of God, but it is something of His divine nature. That is the, the glory of God, the presence of God among His people. It's what the Old Testament writers described as the cloud, the fire, right? the, the burning bush, the thing that could not be beheld, the, the being, the great and eternal God that no eye uh, could see. Okay, the descriptions of Elijah and Moses are, if you wanted to put these in modern terms, it's like they're going to put on their, their sunglasses and pull their hood over their head and make sure that their, their faces cannot be seen by God because they could not come into the presence of that glory. Okay? This is the glory that John, that John uh, G, uh, Peter, James, and John behold now in Jesus. But the second thing about this, the transfiguration of Christ reveals the approachable radiance of the glory of God, you're probably familiar with that phrase because this is at the beginning of Hebrews, okay? In Hebrews chapter 1, you remember the writer of Hebrews, he's saying, listen, in the past times God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son, Christ Jesus. And then he says there in chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. See, what's happening in Luke chapter 9 
is that the disciples are perceiving that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, that's important, okay? Because here's the difference. Moses comes down off the mountain, and Moses depicts a reflection of the glory of God, okay? It's reflected in his face. The writer of Hebrews, using the word radiance, is very intentional, okay? Radiance means that he is the source of. As the sun radiates heat and light, so Jesus radiates the glory of God. It is coming from within him. It is part of his very being. He is the source of the glory of God here now among us. Very different than anything we've witnessed before. And we see it in this passage because they describe it here in verse 29. It says, as as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Okay, so here's what those words mean. First of all, the word alter, it is a Greek word that means to be substantively changed. Okay, so they're not saying, we saw Jesus and it appears that his skin color was slightly different. Or it appears that he just had a glow about him that we didn't witness before. Okay? That's not what they're saying. Or that he appeared more lively than we had ever seen him before. To speak here of his face being altered is for them to say there is something drastically different. The substance of his face had changed in their perception. They saw him now not as just Jesus, our rabbi, they saw him as very God of very God. And the next line then says that they not only perceived his face being altered, but that his clothing became dazzling white. The, the Greek word is the word lukos. Lukos, and if you pick up a, a lexicon or a commentary, they'll be quick to point out, well, this isn't just the color white. Okay, this is a uh, an apocalyptic color white because this word appears once here and twice in the book of Revelation and that's kind of it for Lucas. Okay, it is a word. It's not like Roy G. Biv, the eight colors of the rainbow, white. It's like white, like I can't describe what this looks like, a heavenly white, a dazzling white, a white that looks like the glimmer of fine stones, okay? This is how Jesus appeared before Peter, James, and John. His face substantively altered his being glowing or glimmering, or I don't even know how to describe it like a heavenly being, okay? Of course, again, very God of very God. And so the disciples perceived that he was the radiance of the glory of God. He was the source of the glory of God. In him was the glory of God. By his very nature, he was the glory of God. Now, I think concerning the radiance, of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, we can learn something from the Apostle Peter, okay? Peter, in some ways, people have perceived him here as playing the fool, okay? But there's something that we can gain from Peter as we look at this passage. As I mentioned earlier, in 2 Peter chapter 1, the New Testament reading that we read just a few moments ago, Peter speaks there and he says, listen, we beheld the majesty, the divine majesty, A very God, a very God. When he spoke, the Father spoke from that cloud and he said, behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter saw with his eyes the radiance of the glory of God. But look at what he does in this passage. Again, this is the the part that doesn't make sense to us. 
But in verse 33, it says, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents. Some translations say three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Many good pastors and theologians have tried to explain what's happening here. Okay? Many have come to different conclusions, but there's a few things I think we can say about this passage. And I want to look not so much at the logic of Peter's conclusion. I want us to see the motivation of Peter's conclusion. Okay? It is illogical in so many ways. Why would you build a shelter for two men who have been dead for like a thousand years and they obviously aren't staying here? Okay? They wouldn't live in your home anyway. They have a divine heavenly place where they reside. Uh, uh, this makes no sense, Peter, but you see the motivation of Peter's question is so important. Just like Moses, as he beheld the backside of God, and he stayed for 40 days and 40 nights wanting to worship the Father, so now Peter, having perceived the divine image of the Son of God, wants to do anything in his power to make the moment last longer. That's his motivation. And so as they're leaving, he's like, well, what, can I, what can I do to keep them here? How can I make this moment last a little bit longer? Well, let's put up some tents, Jesus, and maybe they can stay a little bit longer. His motivation is a desire to be in the presence of the living God that he might perceive the radiance and be near the warmth, the love, the power of the Father. See, it's, it's like, I was thinking about this, it's like two young people who are dating and they want to get married soon. And, and when they're dating, you know this, they're, they're so in love. And so the, let's say the, the boyfriend uh, or the fiancé, he takes the, his, uh, his fiancé or girlfriend home and he drops her off. But uh, she wants to spend more time with him, so she leaves her sweater in the car, right? And, and then the, the man, he's like, well, she left her sweater. I guess we've got to go spend more time together. I'll take her. You know, this is terrible, but we'll, we'll go do it, okay? Uh, we'll spend time together. Um, they can't get enough of each other. That's a small portion of what's happening here with Peter. Just can't get enough of it. Wants to be near to Jesus. Doesn't want the moment to end. And I say we can learn something from Peter because this is significant, all right? If we're to be near to God, if we're to experience the love of God, to be saved by the Father, to be reconciled to Him, to be received into His family, to have eternal life with Him, to spend eternity in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. If we are to do any of that, it must be through the radiance, the glory of God in the Son, Christ Jesus. We have to be brought near to Him. We have to be like Peter, yearning to be with Him, okay? portrait of Peter here, the one that we ought to desire for our hearts, is the one that the psalmist reflects on when he says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. This is what Peter is doing here. For all of his foolishness, I think he could care less what you think about him at this moment. He wanted to be near the radiance of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, his Savior. That's the second point. The third, as we look at the transfiguration of Christ, it reveals the approachable radiance of the glory of God. 
Approachable is not a word you find in the text. You won't find it in Hebrews chapter 1 either, okay? It's my word, but I think this is the biggest idea in this passage that we often miss, okay? This is the one like, this is the big deal, and we've never even thought about it, okay? Many instances. Here's where the Old Testament texts really help us to understand this passage. You think about the glory of God again from Moses all the way through Ezekiel. The glory of God before the people of Israel, represented by a cloud descending upon the tabernacle. The glory of God that Moses could not perceive. The glory of God that filled the tabernacle that no man could enter into the presence of. Okay? You fast forward. You've got Elijah. The glory of God that appeared to Elijah in a low whisper. That Elijah covered his face to go out into the presence of. That Elijah could not perceive lest he be consumed by the glory of God. The cloud of the presence of God. Okay? Fast forward to Ezekiel. Ezekiel perceives the cloud of the glory of God, this cloud of visible manifestation of His glory that was in the temple that had been there for hundreds of years, the presence of God with us that now left the temple, descended, ascended upon that mountain and had departed from the face of the earth. Okay? That is the visible manifestation of God with us in the Old Testament. Understanding that, you pick up this text and it says in verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. All right? Make no mistake, this cloud is the manifestation of the glory of God the Father there in the presence of the disciples. Okay? And when I begin reading verse 34, and I hear that the cloud of the presence of God overshadowed Peter and James and John, do you know what I'm thinking? Get out of there! Run as fast as you can. The cloud of the glory of God that consumes anyone who looks at Him is coming near you. It's overshadowing you. The presence of God is imminent. You better run right now. Okay, it's like a, an action movie where you're like telling the, the main character, run, go now, don't linger. That's what we ought to be thinking about James, John, and Peter. But this story takes a very different turn. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. Does that seem odd to you? It's never happened before. Moses couldn't look. Elijah couldn't show his face. No one could enter the temple. And at this moment, the cloud of the glory, the actual representation, manifestation of the presence of God with us descends upon Peter, James, and John. And it says they're terrified, they're afraid, and they entered into the cloud. Mind-blowing! This is a moment where we have to say something has changed. Something has changed for everything that we know of God. These last however many thousand years of the Old Testament, something has changed. And I give you a hint. The glory of God has not changed. Okay? The all-powerfulness of God has not changed. The all-consuming nature of God has not changed. Something else has changed. And there are hints of it in the passage. Okay? 
Because in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And again, Peter reflects there, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In verse 36, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. That is not inconsequential. The depiction here to us and to the disciples is that not through Moses, okay, not through Elijah, not through any other means, but the one who stands here alone, have you now gained access to the living God. And you may boldly come through Him to the Father. He is now safe to you. You will not be consumed, but you instead will be blessed because of the Lord Jesus Christ who now makes you approachable. He is both approachable to us and He makes us approachable to the living God. Peter, James, and John entered into the very Shekinah presence, the Shekinah glory of God. And the account reveals that Christ is the approachable radiance of the glory of God the Father. It's a wonderful thing that happens in Luke chapter 9. Now, you, you would logically ask this question. This is where I want to end this morning. You would logically ask this question, how is that possible? How is it possible that the presence of God with us has been such that no eye could behold, that no person could come near, that no tongue could speak, and now we may boldly enter into the presence how is that possible? Well, again, there are hints of that in this passage. Again, the voice comes from the cloud. The voice comes from heaven. This is the voice of God the Father saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Again, there's a footnote there. It could be translated as, this is my son, my beloved son. This is a reflection again on the words of God at the baptism of Jesus where he said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter records at this moment on the mount that God said, indeed, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay? That phrase, this is my son, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, it should tell you everything that you need to know. It should tell you everything you need to know because this is a reflection of the active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often talk about his passive and his active obedience. Passive obedience is the obedience that took him to die on the cross, to bear the sins of many for the reconciliation and the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. But the active obedience of Christ Jesus is the entire life that He lives where He is the obedient Son of God, the second Adam who fulfills everything that man was designed to and more in faithful submission and obedience to the Father. That's what's reflected in the line, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is what is meant when we see Peter and James and John coming into the presence of God by the blood of Christ. This phrase, my son with whom I am well pleased, now applies to us. We are sons and daughters with whom God is well pleased, not because of our faithful obedience, but because that active obedience, that faithfulness of the Son. That which God speaks about as He speaks from heaven here, that has been applied to us. Through the obedience of Christ, 
We now come into the presence of a holy God. We come with boldness, knowing that we need not turn away, that we need not hide among the rocks, cover our faces, shroud our vision, shy away, knowing that nothing has been diminished or altered in the holiness of our God, but that everything has changed, not for Him, but for us. By the obedience of the Son, who now ushers us into the radiance of the glory of the Father. He is the approachable radiance of the glory of God. And so God the Father says this morning, this is my beloved Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. How could we not? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that this is a day that you have ordained for your word to be declared around the world, for the saints in the church, capital C, to be gathered together to sing your praises, to glorify your name. And so we thank you, our Father, that through what is represented here this morning in this transfiguration. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who was obedient in His life and obedient in His death, through Him we now have reconciliation. I pray, Lord God, that this depiction of the cloud of Your presence would be no small thing to us that we would see the glory and the awe, the reverence, the holiness of our God. And that we would recognize that that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That You are an all-consuming fire. That this has not changed. But what has changed is our identity before You. Through the obedience of Christ in His life and His death, we have been made saints. We have received righteousness imputed to us that covers all of our sin. That You, O Father, perceive us as sons and daughters of the living King. So may we as sons and daughters Praise Your holy name. Out of the thanksgiving of our hearts, through the righteousness of Christ, may You be glorified in everything we say and do this morning. We love You. We thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen.